All right, if you got a Bible, guess where? Genesis 1. We're wrapping up our series today. Satan hates Genesis 1. Hey, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. You can grab a Bible. If you can't afford a Bible, take the Bible. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure that you have one, a, a real one, a physical one. Digital ones are great, but so are these. Thanks for being here this morning as we kind of kick off this, this Thanksgiving week. And uh, today we're wrapping up our series entitled Satan Hates Genesis 1. And Satan does hate Genesis 1. And what we've been doing throughout this series is examining the foundational truths that God wrote right at the beginning of his book so that we might know how the world was supposed to function and then how we as humanity are supposed to function. Namely, that we exist to bring God glory and in bringing God glory, we experience our deepest joy. Satan, though, hates Genesis 1. He hates Genesis 1 because trapped between his past rebellion and his future judgment, all he has left to do is to try and destroy both the earth and humanity. Satan has one tactic, lies, lies. So he uses lies and deception to try to distort God's truth as laid out in Genesis chapter 1. And so today what I want to do is I want to wrap up our series, helping us uh, understand what Genesis 1 has been building up into, and then talking about then where or how do we operate now in life as individual Christians, as families, and as a church, understanding what God created in Genesis 1. We're going to look at the last verse of Genesis 1 today as a starting point for our time. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. You ever get done making something or doing some yard work? You look back and you go, man, this looks really good. Got done raking the leaves yesterday. I said, Lindsay, look how good this looks. She said, you missed the spot. I said, no one asked you, all right? You just look back and say, this looks so good. God got done at the end of uh, day six in Genesis chapter one, and he looked out at all of it, and he said, this is so good. And what God was saying in that moment is, my plan is so good, and the earth that I have formed and created, sin is not yet distorted. It is so good. And Genesis chapter two is just a, a microcosm of the sixth day of creation. And so when we say Satan in Genesis one, we actually mean one and two, because two is really a part of one. And so God looked in and he saw, this is good. It is good that I have made man in my own image. So man has an inherent value that he doesn't have to earn. He has a value because he's made in the image of God. And even when sin distorts it, we can now be raised up with Christ. We get our salvation, something else that we can't earn. We're just giving it to us freely by Christ. So we have this value. We don't have to run around all of life trying to earn our value. We're given it. That's good. And then out of that value comes the threefold purpose that God has given all of humanity to steward, multiply, and expand. That is good. And then God gives us an unchanging, fixed identity. And the world lives in this constant tension of a shifting identity, uh, placing our identity in all of the things we accomplish or, uh, or the people that we're around or the job that we have. And God just gave us a fixed identity. And it started in the womb when he created us male and female. And understanding who we are then as male and female becomes part of the identity that God has given us. And then God formed us in our identity to be in family. And God saw all of this and he said, this is so good. So good. 
And I wonder, in that moment in history, God, in his infinite wisdom, looked out, and he knew what was going to happen, of course. But I wonder if in that moment he could stop and see what the world, what humanity would have looked like in five years, 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, 10,000 years, had sin never broken in. If Satan's assault on Genesis 1 had never begun. Now, of course, the assault did happen. And in Genesis chapter 3, sin breaks into the world. And sin wreaks havoc, and sin always leads to death. And so all that God had created that was good in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 was still good, but now it was distorted under the weight of sin. And so in Genesis chapter 3, after sin breaks into the world, God comes up with a plan of redemption that we now know as the gospel. But before we turn back to the gospel and how it redeems what Satan broke down, this morning what I want to do is I want to uh, paint the picture of what God had originally intended, particularly what God had originally intended for um, the building or the developing of society. See, in our first four weeks here, we've really been pretty personal. God created the heavens and the earth. God had a good and perfect plan. Then he made you in his image. In that, he gave you that inherent value, that threefold purpose, and that unchanging identity. But today, we ask the question, but where do I fit in this big old world? Where do we fit? And God had an answer to that question, namely, that we fit in family, And for those of us who don't have earthly family, that's why God gave us the church family. That we're to fit within the context of family as God had designed it. And that's how society and humanity would most thrive. This was God's plan for building his society through family. And so that was God's plan, but then Satan had his own plan, and right from the very beginning, Satan has been trying to disrupt God's plan by dividing our families, by ruining and disrupting the family unit as God had laid it out, and then as those families broke down and formed into cultures uh, and different people groups, then turning those people groups against each other. And the wars we fight today And the wars we have fought over these last centuries are because these people groups have then turned against each other. The breakdown of society. And the breakdown of society and the assault against society has been Satan's plan that we'll see unfold right at the beginning of Genesis, simply attacking God's plan for family. So first, though, let's start and see what did God intend? What was the original design and plan And as we get into this, let's, of course, admit to ourselves that no one's family is perfect. No one has done marriage perfectly. No one has done parenting perfectly. No one has been a child perfectly. No one has been the perfect sibling. And so we acknowledge that, uh, yes, there are many errors, mistakes, and sins that come and break down even our own families. And so we look today at the perfect picture of this, not, not to make ourselves feel bad for not living up to it, but seeing what God had originally intended and then submitting ourselves to Christ so that we might be a part of recreating what was lost. And so in the beginning, God uh, created marriage, and marriage was to be the building block of society. And that is why it is so wrong and offensive when marriage gets redefined, because it was never for humanity to define in the first place. Marriage was God's entity. It was what he created for society to thrive. 
And so God created it, and he created it with male and female to exist within the context of marriage. And he told us how marriage was supposed to operate and why it existed. And so even those of us who are married or want to be married someday, this will be a quick little marriage reminder. Why did God create it? Well, in Genesis 2.18, God shows us why he formed marriage in the first place, because the very first problem in the world wasn't sin, it was loneliness, The very first problem in the world was humanity asking the question, who do I fit along with? And so God looked in and he saw that there was not a suitable helper for Adam. And so it said that he formed the woman out of Adam. Marriage's original intention or aim was about companionship. That was the first thing that marriage was supposed to solve. And so God brought Adam and Eve together. Whenever I perform a wedding, at some point I stop and I look at the bride and the groom and I say, look and behold your best friend. And for some of us, if your marriage is struggling, it might just be remembering the beginning. Marriage is a initial aim was to solve a friendship problem, a loneliness issue. And so marriage started as a companionship thing, and they were uh, formed in a complementarian state to serve one another. But marriage doesn't just stop at that, because a lot of us have a lot of friends, right? And so uh, marriage then continued. And in Genesis 2.24, we see that, uh, that you leave the father and the mother, and the two become one. And so marriage moved then from friendship to oneness, oneness in every way. Oneness in legal, oneness in sexuality, oneness in finance, oneness in uh, relationship, oneness in I'm pursuing you more than anyone else and to the exception of everyone else, oneness. And then it didn't even just stop there. God said, now let me give you an even greater gift in marriage. The very next verse says, the very next verse is slipping my head. What does it say? This is why I do have notes. Oh, yeah, how can I forget this one? (laughs) It says they were naked and knew no shame. Genesis 2.25. Now, this is way more than sex, okay? Way more. You know what it is? It's the idea in Christian marriage, because of forgiveness that we receive in Christ, and we can be Christ to each other, of being both fully known and fully loved. Oh, it's the most beautiful part of marriage. Where the world says the more you get to know somebody, the more you reject or run away because of their fears, faults, failures, and sins. And in Christian marriage, it says, no, the more you get to know somebody's fears, faults, and failures because of how Christ knew your fears, faults, and failures and still loved you, you still love them. And it forms you together. And Satan, Satan has assaulted marriage. He's assaulted marriage by wanting us to throw off our complementarian understanding of it. He's assaulted marriage by getting us to elevate other things as more important to it. He's assaulted marriage by degrading it. He's assaulted marriage in so many different ways. But God had a plan for it. And the, uh, as the plan began to be distorted, the Apostle Paul, much later in his letter to the Ephesians, says, hey guys, let me just remind you uh, some things about marriage. And so uh, let me do my role this morning and, and just remind us all a couple things about marriage. And isn't it interesting that even just reading this passage today becomes somewhat controversial? Not that we care, but Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. See, one of the ways, notice it doesn't say women submit to men. It says wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This is part of the complementarian way that God had designed marriage. 
And God knew, uh, and Satan knew, that one of the ways that marriage could get distorted is by the woman in the marriage becoming either over-aggressive or silently passive-aggressive. And so instead, what God says is submit to your own husband's. Now this then, it puts a great onus on the husband to do exactly what Paul instructs the husband to do, and that is husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And the way this often most uh, uh, gets distorted is then instead of husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, husbands either become abusive or passive. Abusive or passive. And a lot of times what happens then in our marriages is that one of these things feeds into the other, and we don't really know which one started which one, but as the wife gets over-aggressive, the husband gets more passive, and then it just comes around in this circle, and so he says, I'm going to be more aggressive, and then it turns into a silent passive-aggressiveness, and all it's doing is spinning around, and it all is leading to despair. And so Paul says at the end, let me just kind of sum it up for you. Women, wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And this was God's original plan for marriage, and it was supposed to be the building block of society because then, outside of that, what was to happen is that these uh, men and women in their complementarian marriages were to have children. A couple weeks ago, I talked about being fruitful and multiplying. I think it was a prophetic message because many of you have been very obedient. I've seen the pregnancy tests, Okay. Um, or you've sent them pictures of them to Lindsay or whatever. So good job, team. And in related news, we do need some more nursery workers in about six months. So be praying about that. Uh, these men and women in these complementarian marriages were to have kids. And then when they had the kids, the, we were supposed to raise them up in a godly way. And... And the kids were that to honor the parents. And Paul reminds us of this again in that same little letter that he's writing to the Ephesians. I'm going to start with the parents. And it's interesting that Paul starts and only includes the fathers. And Satan has known from the beginning that one way to ruin society is to ruin fatherhood. The one way to disrupt society is to get dads to abdicate their responsibility in the home. And Satan has used many tactics, and I'll explain some of them uh, in a little bit on how he has disrupted fatherhood in our communities. But God, through Paul, shows us this is what fathering and parenting was supposed to look like. And so he's talking specifically to the fathers. He says this, first, do not provoke your children to anger. One of the other translations says, don't exasperate your children. And what it is, it was a reminder to the father uh, to, to want to be the adult in the room, to not elevate the anger and the tension in the room, but instead to uh, settle it down, to not be controlled by your temper, to not be so overbearing that you crush the life out of the child, to not discipline out of anger instead of love, but to love your children by not provoking them to anger, by not riling up unnecessarily, either through your immaturity and how you speak or uh, in, in the temper that you never learned to control. And then he says, it's not just about that, though, dads. It's also about bringing them up in discipline. And so all of what I've just said doesn't negate the fact that discipline is important. 
And that as fathers, like God the Father disciplines us, we are to discipline our children. And scripture teaches us over and over that discipline is a sign of love. And that the root of discipline always should be love. Otherwise, it is not biblical discipline. It always comes out of love. But that we discipline then our children. And then he says, it doesn't just end there. And thirdly, he says, and raise them up in the Lord. In other words, teach them how to love Jesus. Teach them how to love Jesus because you love Jesus and it overflows from you. Teach them how to love Jesus because you teach them the, the Holy Scriptures. Teach them how to love Jesus because they're standing next to you when they get old enough in church and you're raising your hands in worship or they see you singing out or they see you reading your Bible. Teach them how to love Jesus. And this was God's plan. Complementarian marriage turning into parents raising children who love Jesus, who were properly disciplined and respected their father because of how he treated them. Oh, and Genesis. This goes bad very quickly. In fact, the story of Genesis is really just the soap opera on how families are horrible. Like, go read it. And then how God is so good in the middle of it to keep redeeming. I mean, we see marriage break down. Abraham is passive when Sarah has an idea, and so he sleeps with her servant. We're still fighting wars today because of it. They parent their kids bad. There's fighting all amongst it. And then, uh, the, to, to look at it then from the other perspective, what happens next is Paul then warns the children. He says, children, obey your parents honor your father and mother. Now, I know we're all children and we're all, uh, you know, we have all have, have parents in one way or another. Um, but let me talk particularly for a second to those of you who are children that live at home. How important is it that we learn to honor father and mother? It became one of the Ten Commandments. God lists um, honoring your mother and father among some of the most, like, what we would label like the most heinous sins. Why? Because God knew that if we couldn't learn to honor our mother and father, we wouldn't be able to learn how to honor him. And so this is why this instruction is so important, that for the children, then they were to honor their mother and father. And so kids, if you live at home, honor your father and mother. Parents said? Yeah. What does it mean to honor your mom and dad? It means to speak well of them, both to their face and behind their back. It means to respect them when they talk to you and to listen. I always say to Reagan, eyes here, eyes here, eyes here. It means to treat them as more than just a, a taxi cab or a bank account. To honor your mother and father. And so we're, we're getting again, I'm just trying to explain the picture of what it was supposed to be. Complementarian marriages and uh, parents raising up their kids and kids honoring their mother and their father. And then siblings. Oh boy. I always tell people I'm the perfect middle child. I have an older brother and an older sister, a younger brother and a younger sister. Understand all the sibling relationships. In other words, I've understand how to mess them all up. 
We see right in the beginning of Genesis 3 what was supposed to be of sibling relationships where Cain and Abel are given different skills and different talents. And the reason they were to do that is because they were each supposed to play a role in the family being fully taken care of. And so God puts siblings into our world and into our relationships because each sibling brings something to the family that the other cannot. And this was the original plan that God had in mind. But sibling rivalry and siblings go so badly in the scriptures right from the beginning. I mean, the very first set, one of them kills the other one. And then the rest of the book of Genesis uh, is about sibling turning on sibling, Jacob turning on Esau. Isaac and Ishmael never really got along. Joseph and all of his brothers fought. Sibling on sibling and sibling on sibling. And in the New Testament, it's actually relatively quiet on how like natural born siblings should treat each other. And the reason that it is, is because all of the New Testament talks about how we relate to brothers and sisters in Christ as siblings. Almost like this, almost like Paul was writing and he was like, okay, nobody understands how to do this sibling thing properly. And so instead of using that as the example, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use the example of how the church members should correlate to each other. And then you learn from that and apply it to your natural sibling relationships. And so what do we see in the scriptures? What were siblings supposed to be to each other? What we as Christians are supposed to be to each other? Always seeking peace. Always seeking forgiveness always standing with each other in hard times. This was supposed to be, and this was God's plan for society. This is how he had set it up. The complementarian marriages would bear these children. They would raise them up in the way they should go. They would honor their brother or their mother and father. They would get along with siblings and then they would make new families and new families and new families and they would all be descended from our first father, Adam. Great plan. Horrible execution. It went wrong, and it went wrong quickly, and every time it went wrong, Satan won. But even when Satan would win, God in his incredible beauty and majesty would come, and he would redeem the broken situation, but brokenness still would have occurred. And to this day, for thousands of years now, Satan has continued his onslaught against families. And as families have broken down and as families have been split apart as that has happened, then those families have broken off into different factions and to different people groups and to different nations and have fought with each other. And they have continued to fight and fight. And so God's plan was for unity through the family. Satan's plan has been destruction through the breakdown of the family and then dividing ourselves amongst our people groups. Now, along the way, along the way, Satan has used a few particular theories and ways to look at the world as a way to break down the family. I want to spend a couple of moments talking about those today because the assault against the family hasn't stopped. And this is still God's plan couple of verses to set up what I, I think the importance for this is. Colossians 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. 
What an interesting terminology that Paul is going to use here. He's going to say right now and into the future, there are going to be uh, thoughts and theories, uh, perspectives of the world. And underneath those thoughts and theories and perspectives of the world are going to be things that are anti-scripture and anti-Christ. And their aim is to spiritually take people captive. In fact, most of this series has been us just simply reminding ourselves of the basic fundamental truths of Scripture that are on such attack today. Reminding us that an eternal word of God hasn't changed in the last 10 years or the last 10,000. And that we need to be aware of these theories and philosophies because they lead to empty deceit. They are according to human tradition. They are according to the elemental spirits of the world. They are not according to Christ. The only thing that is according to Christ is what we have previously laid out. That was God's plan. Of course, Satan has his own plan. In Romans chapter 12, Paul takes it a step further. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He says, don't think the way the world thinks. Don't think the way the world thinks about marriage. Don't think the way the world thinks about sexuality. Don't think the way the world thinks about parenting or being a child. Don't think that way. Instead, let the gospel transform you. Sin has distorted. Now think properly. Think properly. One more, because Paul hits this over and over. In fact, much of the New Testament is us being warned against false teaching. And it's interesting that it makes up much of the New Testament, but little of our modern sermons. Galatians chapter one, Paul takes it one step further when he says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be cursed." As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be cursed. Paul is looking in, he's saying what's going to emerge is contradictions to the biblical plan that God laid out. And anyone who posits those theories, who champions them, whether they are an angel, another or in our modern language, whether they're a famous preacher, whether they're leading a denomination, uh, whether they've written a couple of books, let them be cursed if they change the truth of God's word. Because changing the truth of God's little word only leads to spiritual slavery. And then the question would be, but why would anyone change this? Why would any preacher, why would any pastor, why would any Christian bend? Because one of the lies that Satan has infused into our culture is this, that if we aren't willing to change scripture, then we're not loving. This is his biggest lie. How could it be loving to believe that? It is much more loving to stand humbly and truthfully on the words of scripture and point out to people that if they continue to follow their twisted ways, it leads to the destruction of their soul in eternity and hell. And the only loving thing for the church to do is to proclaim the truth of God's 
plan. That's why Paul is so strong in these. That's why he hits it in every one of his letters. Do not let the truth be lost. He goes on and he reveals a little bit of the motivation. He says, the motivation oftentimes is this, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says the motivation so oftentimes for why people begin to distort the truth of Scripture is because they want to please man. They want humanity to look in. They want the the theorizers or the philosophers to look in and say, oh, yeah, I understand how you're trying to change a little bit of what you used to think and understand our perspective a little bit more. I could care less about the perspectives of this world because they all lead to the exact same place, hell. One. James tells us this, friendship with the world leads to enmity with God. And one of the great tragedies of the last however many years uh, in the church and in uh, major denominations in our country has been them trying to straddle a line between the theories of this world and the truth of the gospel. Friendship with the world leads to enmity with God. When you are straddling, you're not actually straddling. You have gone fully over to the other side. We have one, one to please him. And you know what pleases him? Truth. You know what pleases him? His plan. That's why he made it. And that's why Satan has been assaulting it. And that's why Satan's lies get so deep because he hates humanity. Do you wish for a second you could just grab the people in your life who you have seen grow away from Christ by believing the lies and say, don't you see? This is all Satan leading you to despair. And many of us have seen this. I've seen it. I've seen it with people I used to stand with in ministry. I've seen it with people that I helped raise up in Christ, begin to believe these thoughts and theories and completely abandon Christ. Famous Presbyterian preacher, last name of Manchin, said there is a time I'm paraphrasing. There is a time when Christian thought changes so much that it no longer is Christian thought or Christian thinking. So what is Christian thinking? It is this truth of Scripture. This truth of Scripture. Which liberates, which liberates humanity. Now, a few theories that Satan has used in particular to disrupt and to destroy humanity to disrupt and destroy society and family. I want to call a couple of them by name because I think it is important that we do. And I think it's important that our minds are aware in our current culture, what in particular is Satan using to destroy people? Because when we can call it, we should call it. So let me give you three of them this morning. And I know I'm not going to give deep, in-depth understanding of all of these. I'm going to hit the surface. You can study on your own. First, evolutionary theory. I know my God created the universe. I don't need to be told anything else. Evolution was a theory rooted in racist underpinnings. 
out of evolutionary theory, you can easily connect the intellectual thought to evolutionary theory, to the advancement and the development of abortion in our country, which was created to destroy the African-American community. Here is Satan up at his old antics, using evolutionary theory to lead to the production and the development of abortion, which has destroyed the family, devalued human life, and caused so much division racially. One theory. That's why as Christians we reject it. God created the heavens and the earth. Second theory then that emerged shortly thereafter, Marxist theory, which is the basis of communism and socialism today. It's a perspective on how the world should operate. It is a salvation of a society that will be redeemed, but apart from the gospel of Christ. Marx himself stated that he hated the created order and that he wanted to uproot it. I don't think there could be a more quintessential philosophy that Paul was warning about than this. It is a perspective of the world that wants to uproot the traditional family and initially divide people by economics. At its core, Marx's theory denies the existence of God. Marx himself said, communism abolishes eternal truths. He goes on to say, it abolishes all religion and all morality. In one of his most famous quotes, he talks about how the aim was to disrupt the nuclear family. It denies the existence of God. In contradiction, Proverbs says, a fool says in their heart that there is no God. Why then would any Christ follower identify or associate themselves with a fool? And why would we want to build our society on the lies of a fool? A fool says in their heart there is no God. Bad trees don't produce good fruit. Understanding this at its core is important. At the heart of Marxist theory is dividing the world into different classes, all competing with each other to the detriment of the other. That's what's at the heart of it, which is a complete contradiction to God's initial command to be fruitful and multiply. But in Marxist theory, the more fruitful and multiply you are, the more evil you are. This is contradictory to how God created the world to thrive and flourish. It was not God's plan. And where it has taken root then, it has been built upon. In its most recent reiteration, known as critical race theory, that has begun to permeate our society, just another attempt to divide humanity by race and to destroy the family. By the way, if somebody says, who says Marxism is against the nuclear family? Karl Marx, he said it. One of the leading organizations advocating for critical race theory states in its initial statement of why it exists to uproot the Western nuclear family. Read God's plan for family. It says it. Christians we cannot identify with, we cannot support, we cannot buddy up with people whose intentions are to destroy God's plan. Now, let me do say this, 
that none of this negates the Christian's responsibility to create an earth and a world and a society that is just and fair. That is not CRT or Marxism. That is Christianity. For God himself said, what do I require of you but to seek justice? And so um, racism and hating racism and repenting of individual racism where you have been a part of it does not make you pro-CRT. It makes you a follower of Jesus. And we as Christians should be leading advocates for these types of things, desiring justice and harmony and calling out the world's lies. We were never meant or intended to be separated by, as Ken Ham reminds us in Answers to Genesis, the 0.012% that makes one person group different from a different people group. 0.012%. And Satan has used that 0.012% to divide humanity for so long and continues to this day to crush our own society by elevating the 0.012, not everything that unites us, namely the Imago Day and more recently the cross. And so Satan uses his theories and he uses these and he weaves them into society and he starts them with our kids and he tries to shift our understanding so that he can propagate his lies and destroy the family and destroy the culture and destroy everything that God said, this is so good. And Christians, we can't let him do that without a fight. So where do we turn? Where do we turn as Christ followers? We don't need a theory. We have a theology. We don't need a posit on what the world might look like. We know what the world will look like one day. Revelation chapter 7. Let me start with the end in mind. This is where we're all headed. I already read it to you. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the thrones and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, all crying out in worship to King Jesus. The end of day is God uniting all of us in heaven as we mutually worship Christ. But this only tells us half of the story because those in Christ are there worshiping and those who have believed the lies of the world are in eternal damnation in hell apart from Christ. Listen to a mega church pastor preach a few and it was a little bit ago, and literally heard the person say, I'm trying to explain this and do this without using the word sin. There is no Christianity without an understanding of sin. There is no preaching without using the word sin because the gospel is the answer to sin, and sin is the problem. And so that is the end, but what about now? What do we do now? We look forward to that day, but what do we do now? Ephesians chapter two, and the letter of Ephesians, Paul, he was brilliant. The letter of Ephesians, as I mentioned earlier, it's just recreating what was lost in Genesis. And so in Ephesians 2, eight through 10, we show how we receive our new inherent value under the cross by grace in Christ alone. 
We see then how in Ephesians 2.10, it says he, he prepared good works for us in advance to do them. We see in that then how we're given a new purpose again because our purpose is, is lost and gets confused. And so what Paul is doing is just laying out the doctrine again of helping us understand how the world is supposed to operate and function. And then in verse 11, he transitions from the individual to the corporate. And he says, corporately, then this is how you are supposed to operate now that you have received the grace of Christ. And so let me read it to you. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. What is he saying there? He's saying that there was a man-made division that separated the races. That's what he's saying. Sound familiar? Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What he's saying there is this, all that the world should say or would say, this should make you hostile. This should make you hostile in your marriage. This should make you hostile in your parenting. This should make you hostile as you look at your, uh, as you look at your parents. This should make you hostile from one sibling to the next. This should make you hostile from one people group to the other. All of that, Christ broke down at the cross. The world will tell us, no, there are still things that need to be done, still works of righteousness that need to happen to break those things down. No, what really needed to happen already happened at the cross. The path and the, the power for unity is already present in what Jesus did on the cross. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. In other words, he wanted to bring all that the world had divided and bring it back together. Stop using your hyphenated identifying terms and just say, I am now in Christ. So making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In other words, Christ took all of the hostility on the cross. He took all of the hostility in your marriage. He took all of the hostility in your parenting. He took all of the hostility that you have towards your sibling. He took all of the hostility that divides nations and peoples. He took all of that upon himself on the cross so that it would die so that we might live. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you are members of the household of God. He has brought you in as a family and you will be built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, you then will be brought, you will be made one and you will stand on the foundational truth of the apostles and the prophets, which is this. You will stand on the truth of scripture. Paul would take it a step further in another letter when he would say, and the church must remain the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Because when the church abdicates its responsibility as the pillar of the truth, then the cracks break in, Satan's theories get its way, and it destroys society. But the church must remain, and the church has always been. And over the last 200 years in our country, the church has always been the thing that stood. And when Satan's lies have stepped up, said, no, this is wrong. But when the church stops doing that, 
Satan's lies have its heyday then, and there is no opposition. So church, it is time again to stand firm in the truth of scripture and say, Satan, your reign over people, the lies that you are spreading will come to an end by the name of Jesus. And so we then do as Christ did. We go first. We go first. Christ moved first from heaven to earth to rescue us. And so what do we do then? We go first, realizing that peace can be found. Have you been the passive husband? Repent, restore, and go first. Have you been the overaggressive wife? Repent and restore and go first. Have you been the father who has provoked to anger? Repent and restore, go first. Have you been the sibling that has turned against sibling? Repent and restore and go first. Have you created more division in society than unity? Repent and restore and go first. And the power of Christ compels us to such a thing. Satan hates Genesis 1. He's going to keep hating it once we're done here. But now we know he does. And now we know why he does. And now we know how to fight back. So church, let's do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you laid out the perfect plan. Thank you that when we messed it up, Jesus came back and redeemed it so it could be possible again. And we know that we're always going to fail. We're never going to live it perfectly, but your grace covers us every time we do. Jesus, thank you for being all that we could not be to create what we could never create. And may our hearts be moved by the picture of revelation, all that is disunified being unified. And although we know we will see it in the end of days, we crave to see it now. And so as we repent and go first, create that beautiful picture in our marriages, in our families again. Create it in our own church. Uproot and eliminate any division that might exist in us. And then help us to be the advocates for the right way to view the world. By the love and the grace of Christ changing hearts. That is the true solution. Thank you for revealing it to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.